You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hi everyone, today we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 to 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I've delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of, God, of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. G'day, City on a Hill. Nick Coombs here with you again. And today we have a lot of work to do. I don't know if you were paying attention during that Bible reading, but there were head coverings and hair lengths and headship and authority and husbands and wives and the angels. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this is the kind of content that I'm here for. Hey, 1 Corinthians 11 is the kind of chapter where we need to remind ourselves what the Bible says about the Bible. That it, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. And so in a very real sense... God is saying to us today, this is the kind of content I want you here for. Yes, it's going to be work as we dive into this confusing text, but it's going to be good for us. So we're going to get right into it, but we're going to need a lot of help today. So would you join me in praying for God to help us now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, even the complex passages. Lord, we pray right now that your Holy Spirit would illuminate 1 Corinthians 11 to us. Jesus, would you be big? In this moment, and would you show us how we as men and women, as your church, can better display you and your glory to the world? Use this text in us to change us and make us more like you. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. If you're not there already, we are going to untie some of the various threads of the patchwork of this chapter, and we're going to look at it through three headings. The first 
thing I want us to look at is uh, the heading order and honor. Order and honor. Verse 2, Paul writes this. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And so as soon as we start reading the passage, we get a signal from Paul that he's going to shift his train of thought and start talking or writing to the Corinthians about a whole new topic. And so we've heard him write to them about unity and division, about sexual immorality and discipline, about sex, marriage, singleness, about how we should wield our freedom in Christ and how we should avoid idolatry. And now from 1 Corinthians 11 all the way through to the end of 1 Corinthians 14, he's going to talk to us about order in Christian worship, order in the church. And to fully comprehend what is behind Paul's train of thought here, it's worth giving a throwback to the very beginning. You might know the very beginning of everything and the very beginning of the Bible reveals to us that all things, you, me, and everything in the world has been created by a living God. And the Bible says in Genesis 1 that after God spoke the earth into existence, it says that the world was, or the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then God sets about turning that chaos into order. And so the chaos of darkness receives light. The waters are separated and then brought together to make sky, land and sea. The land sprouts vegetation and that in turn produces seeds, which in turn sprout more vegetation. Stars are placed in the sky to bring order to our, our times and our seasons, our days and our years. And so God forms and God fills. God brings order where there was chaos. And the capstone of God's creation, the mantelpiece on his uh, mantle, God creates humanity. Male and then female. Humanity takes pride of place in God's creative work. And all the thousands of systems and structures that make up the human body, the Bible tells us that we have all been fearfully and wonderfully knit together. I recently came across a satirical article which poked fun at how the amazingness of all that God has done in His creation and how we can be so blind to what it says about who God is. Here's the article. I'll quote it at length. Sources confirmed Tuesday that local free thinker Jared Olson called into question the absurd idea that God had ever done anything for him, all while inhaling oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide in a complex process well beyond his mind's capability of understanding in its entirety. The idea of God is really just holding us back, Olson opined, addressing the other members of the philosophy club at Edmonds Community College as the membrane across his larynx vibrated to modulate the flow of air from his lungs, making his speech audible to the people listening whose intricate ear structures then instantly transform the invisible sound waves into abstract thought in their brain's nervous tissue. Olson went on to pursue the line of reasoning even further, claiming that mankind has science and medicine and mathematics to thank for its continued existence rather than any sort of all-powerful creator for which there is absolutely no evidence. According to eyewitnesses, he made these claims as the surface his feet rested on continued to spin around the Earth's core without any input from him, all while the only known habitable planet on which he stood rocketed around the center of the galaxy in perfect formation at the unfathomable rate of 490,000 miles per hour. 
At one point during his expertly crafted speech, Olsen reportedly glanced around the room to observe the nods of approval from his peers, his eyes, hundreds of millions of cone and rod cells responding to stimuli in an unimaginably sophisticated procedure. As these elaborate structures continued to capture and process an unbelievable volume of input per second, Olsen reported he was all the more confident from the looks of those around him that he had proved his case. As satire often does, it stings a little. And not just stings the atheist, but stings, if you're a Christ, committed Christian like me, we too can fail to comprehend the awesomeness, the power and the order of what God the Creator has done and is doing in His creation. About seven years ago, my wife Jules and I took a pre-kids holiday to Europe for several weeks. And we did all the touristy things that you would do uh, if you're in places like Italy. And one of those things was we went on a tour of the Vatican. And at one point, we got into the Holy Holies of the Vatican tour, which is the Sistine Chapel. And it is magnificent. It is glorious. It is beautiful. And it's particularly famous because of uh, the roof, which has been painted by artist Michelangelo and depicts the Last Judgment. Now, that artwork is so uh, delicate, so intricate, so beautiful. And as we're there, the, the powers that be, the security guards in the Sistine Chapel, want to protect that. And so no one's allowed to use uh, their phones with flashes. Uh, even the lights themselves are always off. Uh, and we weren't even allowed to make any noise, lest our voices and, our, and the noise of the crowd kind of disturb the paint. And so you can imagine, hundreds of people in this little chapel, and we're all walking around the whole time, cranking our necks, looking up at this glorious, beautiful, intricate work of art. And yet the Bible tells us that a far more glorious, far more intricate, far more beautiful work of art is what God has done in making you and me in making humanity in His image. You and I and every human being are created in God's image. And as God creates, we see in Genesis that He charges us, He charges all of humanity to go forth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over creation. And then He delegates to Adam and Eve and He delegates to us to bring order to His creation as He Himself has done. And one of the things we miss in our modern day is what that order, what that creative order communicates to us and to the world. I was driving just this week in my little Toyota Corolla with my four-year-old Axel in the back seat. And we just so happened to be listening to the Lion King soundtrack. I know I mentioned the Lion King last time. Uh, it is quickly becoming the new C.S. Lewis of C City on a Hill sermons. Uh, but we were listening to the, the track and, and on came an instrumental track called The Elephant Graveyard. And so I'm thinking to myself, this is an instrumental track. My boy's not Hans Zimmer yet. Uh, he, he's going to want to kind of move on from here. He's probably going to say any second now, Dad, can we put Colin on? Uh, but he doesn't say that. What he says instead is he starts describing everything that this track is communicating. And so the music starts playing and the beginning's kind of dark and mysterious. And Axel starts telling me that this is when Simba is walking through the elephant graveyard. And then it shifts to this kind of eerie music with loud thuds. At least that's how my non-musical kind of uh, language can describe it. And he's telling me that this is when the hyenas are scaring Simba. And then as the track goes on, there's this kind of glorious crescendo. 
And he's telling me, this, dad, this is when the dad comes out. This is when Mufasa has come to save Simba. And so with absolutely no words, he knew what the music was saying. And in a similar way, God has created the world to say something to the world without words. In our day, we think that things exist purely for their functional value, their benefit that they provide us. That stars exist to shine in the night sky and look to us like impressive constellations. Rocks exist whenever we need a hard surface to build something. Animals exist, at least for some of us, for the food that they provide us. But in the Bible, we find out that the stars and indeed all of the heavens are declaring the glory of God. That rocks exist, not just to pave impressive Melbourne laneways, so that God might point us to it and say, you can stand on me. I am steadfast. I am strong like a rock. That animals exist in part so that God could use them to illustrate attributes about himself. Like when Jesus, looking over Jerusalem, lamenting, saying, oh, how much he is longing to draw his people to himself like a mother hen. And then there's all the other parts of creation that the Bible doesn't explicitly speak to that reveal to us God's creativity, God's beauty and design. The whole of creation is injected with meaning by its creator and all of it is pointing back to him. And so the stuff of God's creation communicates something about him. But how he goes about his creation with thought, with intricacy, with detail and with order, communicates something too. Later in 1 Corinthians, we're going to see that, that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is a, a God of order. But the Old Testament tabernacle in the back half of Exodus is kind of the chapters in the Bible when your Bible reading plan gets there every year, you're kind of debating whether I should skip forward to what's coming next because it just repeats how the tabernacle was meant to be constructed. It's there so that we might see that how we approach God in worship matters. That God has an order to this. It tells us that God is thoughtful and purposeful and detailed. It assures us that just as he, he cares about the sparrows who fall in a rainforest, so too he cares about us and what is going on in our life. Just as he knows every hair on our head, so he knows every worry in our heart. God doesn't forget where he leaves his keys. And so he's not going to forget about you. God doesn't create haphazardly. And so surely he knows how to lead you through your life, step by step by step. And that God's creation exists for his glory. And that God creates with order. Those two truths come together in how God establishes the church. The New Testament, we're told that just like the people of God in the Old Testament, we would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then the Apostle Peter says that that is occurring, that's happened, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so the church was created to proclaim the glory of God in what he has done for us in Jesus. Because Jesus, God's Son, steps into the chaos of our world and brings order. Into the chaos of broken relationships, Jesus brings reconciliation. Into the chaos of loneliness and isolation, Jesus brings community and family. Into the chaos of our sin and death, 
Jesus brings his life and offers it to us for eternity. And you know what's amazing? That as we, the church, gather week by week by week, as we step out of the world of chaos and gather together as his people, we act as a living demonstration of this order to the world. As those who know and enjoy the order and beauty of Christ, so when we gather together, we need to reflect that order. So 1 Corinthians 11 through to 14 is about embodying that order in our worship so that believer and unbeliever alike can, without distraction, hear the good news of Jesus and then be invited to respond to him. And so this text is going to take us to some controversial places. We're going to talk about men and women and how we relate to one another. And I'm conscious that this can be hugely sensitive and a difficult issue for many of us. For some, this is the topic that the unity with your Christian brothers and sisters is contingent upon them having the same perspective as you on how men and women should relate to each other in the church. And so it's helpful to recognize up front the context of what we're about to see. Does Paul care about male and female relationships in the church? Of course. Is that his primary concern in this passage? No. Paul's greatest concern is that the church display the truth about God in the way it worships together. And so our greatest concern as the church is not what men should or shouldn't do, not what women should or shouldn't do. No, our greatest concern is that we might display the glory of God, that we might be on mission to know Jesus and make Jesus known, that we might come together to worship Him. The worship of God matters, and what we communicate to the world when we gather together matters. And so let's dive further into the text uh, and look at our next heading, glory and shame. Paul continues in chapter 11, verse 3. He says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And so Paul dives into a very specific issue in Corinth. Uh, and it's good at this point to remember that when we pick up the letters of the New Testament, they are written to real people in real time, at a real place, with real issues before they're written to you and me. And so picking up this letter is like going to someone's letterbox randomly, choosing a letter and trying to make sense of it. We need to know the background. We need to know the context. We need to know what is going on between the author and the receiver. First, Paul brings up in these verses something that isn't so contextual. He makes a theological statement concerning the order in a marriage. He says that the head of every man is Christ, and within marriage, the head of a wife is her husband. Now, I know that even reading that out loud right now is going to feel like a punch in the stomach for some of us. It is jarring. It is uncomfortable. Some of you right now are even perhaps feeling uh, the rising heat of anger that we would be speaking this. If that's you, let me encourage you, stay with me. Stick with me as we go through this. Thank God for your passion. 
Let's stick together that we might walk and discover what Paul is saying here and, and find clarity and wisdom together. First, it's important to see that the order is specifically given only in marriage. Every man is not the head of every woman. But even further, the same Bible that speaks of headship also goes to even greater lengths to help picture for us what that headship entails. And so we're going to look at this more as we move through the passage. But here in verse 3, the headship of a husband is equated with that of Christ. That is, headship is a responsibility and authority that expresses itself in joyful sacrifice in a desire to serve, in a pattern of lovingly, gently, courageously protecting and providing for those within our sphere of responsibility. In this case, a husband graciously pouring himself out for the good of his wife. And what was happening in Corinth was that that order of marriage was being forgotten and ignored by the church as they gathered together for worship. Wives were praying and prophesying and gathered worship, but under the premise of exercising their newfound Christian freedom, they were throwing off the cultural custom of wearing a head covering while they were doing so. Good to know that in ancient Rome, head coverings were worn by women so that they could announce to the world when they were out that they were respectable and attached to their husbands. To not wear a head covering was to tell the world, hey, I'm available. And even more than that, I want the attention of other men. And so it's the equivalent today of a married woman pulling up into the car park at church, taking off her wedding ring to leave it in the car, walking into the foyer wearing suggestive clothing, finding all the single guys and saying, hey, come find me on christiansingles.com. Importantly, to not wear a head covering was to upend social order by dishonoring a woman's husband, but even further, by becoming a distraction to the church as they gathered to worship. So instead of giving God glory as they should, they were instead bringing shame. And Paul tells the men that they shouldn't wear a head covering. Again, because at the time, a head covering for men was a signal of something. And in this case, it was a signal of them being a part of the cultural elite. Quite differently than the women, for men, a head covering was a sign of status. And so if men were to walk into church wearing a head covering, it would be as if they were announcing to everyone, hey, I am someone of clout. Look at me. Look at my status. Just like the women, gaining attention for themselves, taking people's eyes off of Christ, off of the glory of God, and instead bringing shame. And so the Corinthians are bringing shame into a place where God's glory is meant to be declared. They were taking the focus of their gatherings off of the worship of Jesus and instead onto themselves, effectively together preaching a false gospel to one another and to the world by saying, hey, we are about each other and not about Jesus. And so 2,000 years later, we need to recognize here what is the principle that holds true and what is cultural custom. The principle Paul is passing on is that husbands and wives need to respect one another as we gather, and that our gatherings as Christians should be places where the good news of Jesus is central. That is the focus. That receives attention, distraction-free. But our cultural customs, for what signals those things, for what signals respect of our spouse, 
or what keeps the focus on Jesus, well, those cultural customs, they have changed. And so women, should you wear a head covering in church today? You can, but I don't think you have to. Men, should you avoid wearing a hat to church? Look, if you've got a non-distracting hat, leave the Mexican sombrero at home. But if you have a non-distracting hat and you want to wear it to church on Sunday, by all means, wear it to church. But to live out the principle, both men and women should be honoring their marriage by what they wear, by how they behave, and therefore ensure that together we keep the focus on Jesus. Jesus is too important for us to steal glory from him. Who Jesus is and what he has done, the message of Jesus' life perfectly lived in place of our failure, the message of Jesus' death atoning for our sin, yours and mine, the offer of Jesus that in him we're going to find forgiveness and freedom, reconciliation with God. The fact that that should go out to all men and all women, it is too important to take the focus off of him. Let's keep the focus on Jesus. The gospel is too urgent and too important to gather together and instead have our minds turned elsewhere. Now, there are many ways that today we use our gospel gatherings to proclaim Jesus, who he is and and what he's done and how we try to keep those distraction free so we can focus on worship of him. Our musicians work very hard to make sure that they can play songs in such a way that we together as a congregation can worship distraction free and sing praises that Jesus deserves. Our designers, they work hard not to use comic sands and not to use wingdings. They work hard to design things that are beautiful, that through them we might be able to distraction-free see the beauty of Christ. Our preachers prepare so that they might be able to preach from whatever text we are at in the Bible and point us and highlight Christ. And as this text continues, Paul's going to continue to highlight further some of the differences between men and women, but how we can complement each other in our gathered worship for the sake of our primary goal, and that is worship of Jesus. And so let's see now what Paul says about distinction and dependence. Paul's going to unpack further the distinction between men and women by turning us back to where it all began, back to the order of creation. Did you notice in in verse 7, he says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, Paul signals, just like he does elsewhere in the New Testament, that there is something significant about Adam being created first, way back at the beginning of Genesis. He's not at all saying that women are lesser than men. And he's going to clarify that in a moment, as we'll see. But he's speaking to the order of creation. There's something meaningful that God made Adam first. And the reason husbands play the role of head in a marriage is because Adam, the man, was made first. And now the mention of angels here in verse 10 likely points to the possible belief in the early church that perhaps some of them may have held that just like in pagan festivals when uh, pagans gathered to uh, sacrifice to idols, they believed that idols came down and festivaled with them. So too, some Christians perhaps thought that just as Christians gathered, angels came down and dwelt with them in their worship. 
Or perhaps the alternative interpretation and the one that I lean more to as more likely is that the Greek word for angel is the same as the word for messenger. And so Paul's concern is that traveling preachers and teachers wouldn't be shocked as they stepped into the church in Corinth by the complete overthrow of social or cultural custom. And so Paul's goal is to highlight here that married men should be respected. But as I mentioned, the Bible also tells us how husbands should wield that authority and handle such authority. This week, I was able to uh, take a, a, an ISO wedding. And so big shout out and congratulations to Kian and Lizzie from City on a Hill, Melbourne East. Every wedding highlights a, a dynamic which is important to notice between husbands and wives that the scriptures point us to in this dynamic of headship. And it's important that we get it right. When we understand it, we see that headship exists, not to kind of lift up the man as distinct from everyone else in his household, including his wife, but rather to actually honor both men and women as equally valuable and gloriously distinct. We see this in a passage like Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5 verse 22, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And perhaps at this point, the guys are thinking, hey, we really got the better end of the stick here. But then we keep reading. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so perhaps now the husband's thinking, uh-oh, I've got to lead like Christ? This is what Paul is saying about this concept of headship. Your headship responsibility is not so that you can be served, but rather a responsibility for you to serve. Not so that everyone in your household can sacrifice for you, but so that you do the sacrificing for them. Lovingly, gently, tenderly, like Christ and for Christ and toward Christ. Now, this is a weighty call. As a husband, I, I, I carry this internal burden in response to this external call. The spiritual temperature of my home the flourishing of my wife, the strength of my marriage, the reconciliation after arguments, the physical provision and protection of my family. Now, certainly both Jules and I contribute to all these things together, but the buck stops with me. And so husbands, are you leading your wives like Christ? Are you laying down your life that you might build your wife up. As you reflect on that, if you're not, let me encourage you to repent. And let me encourage you to turn to Jesus. Because the same Jesus we're called to imitate is the same Jesus who has led perfectly in our place. That when we go back to Jesus, there we find the resources for our forgiveness, for our freedom, and for our empowerment to serve like Him. Run to Jesus. Look to Jesus, and then we can lead like Jesus. 
And so Paul takes his cue from the creation order in Genesis. And that original charge to both Adam and Eve to, to go forth, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, essentially bring everything under the reign of Christ, well, it continues for men and women today. And so the empowerment that we men find to lay our lives down is also the same empowerment that women find to join us in this mandate. Eve was famously created as a, a partner for Adam from Adam's rib. And that reality led uh, author Matthew Henry to write this great quote. Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to rule him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. And this is what Paul signals next in our passage. In verse 11, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. And so just as Eve was made out of a man, Adam, so too now every man who has ever been born comes from a woman. And so we're not just distinct, but we are dependent upon one another. Men aren't from Mars and women aren't from Venus. No, we're all made by God, made for God, and are to work together with God to see Him glorified throughout the world. And so if the goal of our lives is to glorify God, if the purpose of the church is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, and if our order in worship is to bring our focus onto Christ, we need each other to do that. Men need women. Women need men. We need each other to fulfill our calling. And I know this is a goal at City on a Hill. We see men and women as complementary to each other. Men are stronger at some things and women are stronger at some things. A male voice says something and a female voice says something. God has gifted us and has gifted all of us so that together we would display more of His glory. And so when we plan our gatherings, we, we ask ourselves, how can we see that played out? How can we see that lived out? How can we be blessed by both men and women in this gathering? And we should do that because we see in this text that there's this assumption that both men and women are going to bring prayer and prophecy to the gathering. And so we want to be complementary. Yes, certainly there are other texts that we need to make sense of about the roles of men and women. That's going to come up later in 1 Corinthians 14 particularly, and it comes up elsewhere concerning the very specific office of a pastor. But the heart of this vision of worship is that men and women together lead, contribute, and partner in worship. Men, we need you. Women, we need you. And often, to speak to the women for a moment, often the, the conversation in the wider church always boils down to what are women permitted to do. It's not that you're permitted. It's that you're needed. You are needed and necessary in our worship as a church. And so women, as we're going to see in the weeks to come in 1 Corinthians, God has gifted you. And we need those gifts to function in our church if we are going to be the body of Christ we're called to be. Jen Wilkin, a great teacher and leader of women uh, with our great friends at the Village Church in Texas, she writes this. She says, It is one thing to say women are permitted to be deacons and quite another to actively seek out and install women in that role. 
It is one thing to say women are permitted to pray in the assembly or give announcements and quite another to ensure that they're given a voice on the platform. It is one thing to say that women are permitted to teach women and quite another to deliberately cultivate and celebrate their teaching gifts. And so brothers, we should pursue our sisters so that they might flourish in our community, in our church. We don't want to be a body of Christ that has one tiny bicep and one limp leg while the rest of the body functions well. We need the whole body of Christ built up. Sisters, maybe you notice brothers in your life that are currently passively looking like they're sitting on the bench. Let me encourage you to call them into the game, to join you on mission, join you in knowing Jesus and making Jesus known so that we can do this together. Our church needs you, women and men. God has purposed you for this, that we would come together and make Jesus known. And so we don't want to mash up the mosaic of the distinctions between men and women, nor though do we want to be independent of one another. We want to be both distinct and dependent on each other as we move forward with our mission as a church. Now, as I close, this text has pointed us back to the very beginning where we saw that all things were created for the glory of God. And it's easy to conceive of that being true of creation out there. But it's also true of you. You have been created for God, by God, so that you might bring glory to God. Man or woman, you are made in the image of God. You have infinite value, dignity, worth. But being made in the image of God also brings responsibility. Your life has a purpose that you might use it to point to Jesus, then you might use it to show what he has done for the world in the gospel. We've heard already in 1 Corinthians that your body was given by God to glorify him. So glorify God with your body. Your gender was given by God that you might express it in such a way that you might point to the gospel. Your mouth was created by God and given to you that it might be used to sing praises to Jesus. Your eyes were designed and given to you that they might be used so that you could see the glory of God and what He has done for you. Your mind was made by God that you might use it to think big, mighty, majestic thoughts of a big, mighty, majestic Jesus. As Colossians says, all things were made through Him and for him. And so let me encourage you, do what you were made for today. Glorify God today. Put your trust in Jesus today. Start pointing others to who Jesus is by putting him at the center of your life today. And as each of us put our trust in Jesus, when we come together, something amazing happens. We together start displaying all the different faces the sides of the diamond that is the glory of God. This week, my son and I were reading C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian. I'm going to be honest and say it is the weakest of the Narnia series, but it's part of a set, and so you've got to get through it. And so we're reading Prince Caspian, and there's this beautiful picture near the end of the story. Peter and Edmund are, are out engaging in sword fighting against the enemy Telmarines, and Susan and Lucy are engaging in a warfare of their own. They're with Aslan. 
And they're with other Narnians and they're going around the country, riding on Aslan's back, singing, dancing, partying, because Aslan has returned, because Aslan has won. And so they're just going out into the world, spreading this joy through their partying and dancing. And as they do, they pass by other Narnians who have been blinded to Aslan's existence for hundreds and hundreds of years. They've been oppressed. They've been enslaved in their unbelief. And yet they see such joy. They see such happiness. They see these people expressing in dancing and song who Aslan is and what he's done. And suddenly their eyes are opened. They receive clarity and courage so that they might join in the dance and join in the party. And that is to me, but a picture of who we are called to be as the church. That as each of us trust in Christ together, men and women use their strengths together, honor God's order and do so in a way so joyfully and so profoundly that it might become attractive to the world. Imagine with me, church, a people Men and women who come together and beat back the cultural gender wars by serving so well together that it looks so attractive to the world that they see it and say, I want in on that. Imagine with me a church where husbands and wives honor one another so profoundly in their marriages that our marriages start to do what they were made for and start to paint a picture of Jesus and the church and what he has done for us to the world. Imagine with me a church where we care little about cultural hang-ups and instead joyfully step into service together, where no one feels boxed in or put down, but all are fanned out and built up for the glory of Christ and the expansion of his kingdom in the world. Church, we should be that church. We can be that church. We must be that church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has created all things for your glory. God, you deserve all the praise, all the glory. And we so long to be men and women. We so long to be a church that testifies and proclaims who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you that your glory reaches an awesome crescendo in Christ, in who Jesus has been for us, living perfectly, dying sacrificially, rising victoriously. Lord, may our lives point to him. May the way that we relate to one another in church and outside of it point to him. And may through pointing to him, you show, show Jesus to the world that others might join in on the party. Others might join in on the dance that it is to live a life for Jesus. Be with us, I pray, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.